What was the first Christmas present you can remember? You know, the first present that when you went to the tree or the bottom of your bed and you felt that present, you knew that you'd got just what you hoped for. What a fantastic feeling. I can remember probably when I was about four or five, I was old enough to have some hopes about Christmas. And I remember receiving a, a baby doll's pram. I was so excited about it. This Christmas, I, I don't think it's about the gift so much, is it? We just want to be together with the people we love. We want to be able to gather, don't we, as a church on Christmas Day. Those are the things now that are our priorities. And we're going to look today at hope. We're going to look at Elizabeth and Zachariah. They were people who had been waiting a long time for something. And we're going to see how their hopes are fulfilled and God breaks into their situation. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to pick out a number of verses to just take us through their story. So Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Jumping to verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. He was serving in the temple. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to drink wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabrielle, I stand in the presence of the Lord and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And then verse 23, when his time of service at the temple was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In the, these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. What a story. I mean, it's easy to see how Zachariah and Elizabeth would have been struggling to hold on to hope over the 
days and the months and the years and the decades that they hoped and waited for a child. Then going through infertility is a heartbreaking journey for anybody who's experienced this. And it comes with so much pain and reminders from people around you and people judging you or assuming things or commenting on things. So this would have defined Zechariah and Elizabeth. In their small community, they would just have been noted as the couple without children. The Bible does imply that they lived a fruitful, righteous life. They held on to the promises of God. They kept the commands of God. Zechariah was a priest. He had a purpose. They were still trying to move on in faith. But I wonder if the weight of those disappointments, the burden of the, the hope that was deferred had made their hearts sick, as Proverbs says. I wonder if they tried to keep faith alive and they told each other the story of Abraham and Sarah who had a, a child late in life. Or had they given up? You know, as they got older and as Elizabeth became beyond childbearing age, did they just resign themselves to being without children? Certainly it seems from Zechariah that he struggles to believe what the angel tells him. He is in shock, of course, but there's doubt as well. There's, there's yeah, just a struggle to take in what the angel is saying. For Elizabeth, it seems a little bit more positive because as soon as she finds out she's pregnant, she says, the Lord has done this for me. She remembers maybe the promises, the prayers that they had prayed. And she is so joyous. You know, when she meets Mary, uh, her heart overflows and the Holy Spirit speaks to her and she speaks out words of blessing on Mary. She says, you know, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill her prom his promises to her. And she's speaking from the place of someone who's seen her hopes fulfilled too. And she waits for that baby to be born. And when the baby is born, Zechariah, who has been silenced all during the pregnancy, he speaks up and he quotes prophets from the Old Testament who had been waiting for generations for the Messiah to come. He names that baby John. And John, that name itself means the Lord is merciful. As a couple, they celebrated the fact that God had been merciful to them and answered their prayers. I love the fact that Zechariah bursts into song and his song weaves together prophecies from the Old Testament, singing and proclaiming about God's tender mercies. I think the people who'd gathered together for the, you know, to give thanks for that baby were kind of getting more than they bargained for as, as the events come together and hope is fulfilled. Zechariah says, sings actually, 
And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. He echoes the words written centuries before by Isaiah that are so familiar to us that speak about the coming of Jesus that John will prepare the way for. Isaiah 9, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. What a hope! that is beginning to be fulfilled in this baby John. But for many of us, as we hear those familiar words again, we also have hopes in our hearts that are unfulfilled. They might be just, yeah, natural desires for family and for a better job or a settled relationship. Or they could be prophetic words that we feel that God has spoken to us but are still unfulfilled. And the Christmas message tells us again, wait in hope. Be like Zechariah and Elizabeth, wait, hold on to the promises. God will break in to your situation. We must hold on in hope, we must wait often in hope. We don't often get our prayers answered immediately. God, though, is working his tender mercy out behind the scenes and in our hearts. Hope is never passive. And we see that in another story in the wise men. They have a hope and that hope forces them out of their houses and onto a journey, onto a long journey to find what they are hoping for. Let's pick up their story in Matthew chapter two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, that's wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They went on a little bit of a detour. They got trapped in the palace with Herod because that's where they naturally looked for a king. And then verse nine, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. These are interesting characters. We don't really know a lot about them, where they came from or why they started on this journey but they were experts in their day. They understood the heavens, they read the stars. They had transport, they had wealth, they were able to go 
on this journey to look for what they hoped for. They had wealth. I mean, many of us, don't we, we fall into our cultures thinking that if we just had a bit more wealth or learning, well, we'd have everything that we could hope for. If we had a bit more money, a bigger house, another degree, then everything would fall into place and our hopes and dreams would be met. And these people certainly had money. I mean, gold, frankincense and myrrh, these are expensive gifts. They don't really seem like the best kind of gifts for a, a small child. I mean, maybe a cuddly toy or, you know, a new outfit or a takeaway for the parents. That's what we would normally give, wouldn't we, to a baby or a small child. But they brought what they had. They gave significant gifts to this king. It makes you think, doesn't it? What started them on that journey? Were they just on a spiritual pilgrimage? Were they just on an adventure? Were they hoping to meet this king and make some kind of political alliance? I don't think so because the king of the Jews really would have been a nobody. I mean, Jew the Jewish nation was a small nation. And remember, it was still under the control of the Romans. So the king of the Jews, well, shouldn't have any power at all, really. But they were coming not for those reasons. They were coming to worship this king that they hoped to find. We don't know if somehow they'd read the Old Testament and they had become God-fearers. They came from a pagan nation, so we really don't know. But they were searching for something. They were drawn to this star and to this sense that there was something more. And as they came to that home, that humble home with a, a, a baby or small child, they bowed before him somehow, even in that setting, rather than in the palace in Jerusalem, they knew they were in the presence of greatness. They were in the presence of the king and they needed to bow and worship. And they too come with joy as Zechariah did. Their, their hearts overflowed with joy. What a wonderful image that the joy was so much that it just spilled out in worship and bowing and gifts. We've seen, haven't we, in the book of Nehemiah over the last few weeks, how worship and offerings are symbols of coming close to God, of worshiping, of gathering of rejoicing. At Christmas, we need to find time for those things, to come away from the busyness and the to-do list and the South Circular and the traffic and have a moment for worship and rejoicing. That hope has come. Hope is here. Jesus has come. As believers, that's our calling to worship. One day in heaven, we will worship eternally. Our hopes will be perfectly fulfilled. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more darkness. We will worship him who is worthy. 
I think as they bowed before him, they caught a glimpse of that. They moved from hope to faith. Seems to me in the Bible that hope and faith are kind of interlinked. It's, it's hard to define the two of them. But in Hebrews, it says this, Hebrews 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And somehow in what they saw, this small child, they knew they were seeing a king. Hope had turned to faith. And faith brought joy to their hearts. What a glorious moment. But after they'd given their gifts and they had worshipped, they had to go back home. And what's interesting is that they're warned that they need to go home by a different route because they're now in danger. So although they've experienced great joy and the fulfilment of hope, there's still the reality of life's struggles and dangers. And they have to find a way through carrying that hope within them. I think they would have treasured that for many years to come. It reminds me of the words of that carol, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. They may well have had to escape in the dark of the night to avoid Herod, but they took with them the light of the world. They took with them an everlasting hope. We need to hold on to those truths ourselves, don't we? We need to, as that song ends, say, oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. You know, over this last year, I've often sat and listened to people who have felt hopeless, who have been struggling with a lot of darkness and suffering and bereavement. One of the amazing things that has happened time and time again is as together we have prayed, God by his Holy Spirit has come into that darkness, into that struggle and has reminded us again of his love, his tender mercy and has poured grace into people's hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would say to you today, if you're in that place where you feel life is a struggle, there is suffering, there is darkness, hold on, hold on in hope. Because today, again, God wants to pour into your heart hope and love and grace to enable you to keep going. A verse from Romans 5 kind of sums up how that happens. It says this. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. That's, that's a hard thing to say, isn't it? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint us. 
because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that's what Elizabeth and Zechariah went through. They were in suffering. They were disappointed. They may have even been hopeless. And yet God poured his love into their hearts. He, he brought hope again. He brought joy into their home. They were part of a bigger story. And the wise men traveling from so far with this vague hope, this star they're following, this king they're looking for, coming and worshiping and the Holy Spirit revealing to them that this is not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the universe and their part of his coming, his story. As I conclude, I just want to encourage you in this season to do two things. The first is really simple. I encourage you to invite people to hear this story again. Invite them to our carol services, to our Christmas meetings, because people desperately need hope. I don't think anybody's going to be offended at being offered hope this year, because we all need hope. And maybe when they come, they think they're just going to get a little bit of hope of the, the glitter of Christmas and the tree and carols. But we know the Holy Spirit can work in people's hearts who are on a journey looking for hope. And they can end up drawn to worship in that moment. So let's be involved in offering hope to people. But then for ourselves, we need God to renew hope in our own hearts, don't we? We so easily lose hope. We so easily drift from faith. And today, the offer for you is as we conclude in worship, that the Holy Spirit can again warm your heart, remind you again that Jesus came. He lived, he died, he rose again because he loves you and he offers eternal hope for you today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you came as Emmanuel, God with us. You come to offer eternal hope. And in these final minutes of this service, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts to remind us of the tender mercy of God, the love of God shown in the coming of Jesus.